may be seated. And I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22 at verse 47 as we continue this series on uh, the book Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and John also join Luke in this particular incident in our text. However, they're a little different. In, they're bringing in different things for their own purposes. And we're going to be concentrating on what Luke says, although I'll be referring to some of the other writers as well. In these verses are two clashing powers. And for each of them, their particular hour has come. One, Jesus himself. The other, the evil one, the devil. Need to keep that in mind. When we use the term hours, we're not talking about it's 10 o'clock, 3 o'clock. We're talking about certain uh, particular moments. And these were particular moments in the lives of both Jesus and the evil one. Before I read these verses, I point out to you the hour of Jesus. Uh, that was something very important to him. And at the first miracle he performed in Cana, he said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. And then in John 7 and 8, there were a couple of times when he was trying to be arrested, and we read that uh, uh, they, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, when he got ready to wash his disciples' feet, he indicated to them that he knew that his hour had come. And finally, in the great high priestly prayer of John 17, he said, Father, the hour has come. And as far as the devil was concerned, we read in Luke 4.13, when after the temptations of Jesus, uh, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, this was the devil's opportune time as Christ's hour was being fulfilled. And he did that through Judas Iscariot who Mark tells us was one of the twelve. He went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. This was also his opportunity, but as we just will notice, it was the devil, the evil one, that was causing him and prompting him to, to do this. With that little background, let me read verses 47 through 53. Jesus has just been speaking to his disciples in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. 
It must have been a tremendous relief to the Jewish religious leaders when Judas came to them and said, I am willing to betray Jesus, let you know where he is, if you'll pay me some money. And they said, all right, it sounds good to us, because they were having a hard time trying to get a hold of Jesus. At that particular moment, they didn't even know exactly where he was. And they had to be absolutely sure when they found him that he was the right person, that they did not arrest the wrong person. So they took Judas up on his, his plans. First, a posse had to be uh, organized of sorts. The temple police had to be notified. And even some Roman soldiers were gathered together to be able to go to find Jesus and to, uh, to arrest him. The hour seemed to be just right for these religious leaders. The, the populace was pretty much settled down and quiet. They had been at the festival of the Passover, and uh, they were preoccupied with that. Jesus would be relatively alone. Judas seemed to indicate that there would not be a, a whole bunch of his followers around, probably just his own 12 disciples or 11 disciples. And uh, it was a quiet night, which would enable them then to find this uh, uh, boisterous, bothersome rabbi from Nazareth. Now's our chance to get him. And so at the beginning of verse 7, we find that while Jesus was speaking to the disciples, here comes this crowd of these various and sundry rowdy people. Um, although the Passover moon was shining down at that time, they brought torches and lamps just in case he was hiding in some tree or some shrubbery or some bush someplace. They wanted to be able to assure that they saw him. So there they were. We're told at the beginning of verse 52, or the end of verse 52, that even weapons had been brought, swords and clubs. So they, they meant business. They were doing everything they could, pull this thing together to get a hold of Jesus of Nazareth, arrest him, and take him, and eventually, of course, crucify him. Notice what Luke says at the middle of verse 44. The man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. The man called Judas. This seems to be Luke's dramatic way of causing us to focus attention, almost isolating him, taking, take, having us take a look at this guy, this man, this Judas person, one of the twelve disciples. Look at him. One of the twelve. Down in, back in verse 3 of this chapter, we read that then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. So no doubt about who he was and his relationship to the disciples and, of course, to Jesus. Look at him now, this man who had been with Jesus three years. At the end of verse 47, we read that he, was, that he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Now, this was a common action of greeting in first century Palestine, even used in some cultures today, a sign of friendship, of esteem, of acknowledging the person, and almost even welcoming them into one's life. But of course, Judas had something else in mind. Matthew puts it this way. He had Judas saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. But Judas, in effect, is saying, to the Jewish religious leaders, I'm taking you to him. I think I can locate him. And when I find him, I will go up and I'll kiss him. And that's your signal to go ahead and grab him 
and take them and guard and do what you need to do with them. Pretty clear instructions, I would say. And so these religious leaders, they were very excited about this. So here's this crowd coming in to the Garden of Gethsemane to do just that. And Matthew shares with us, Matthew 26, this is how what Judas said when he came. He said to Jesus, Greetings, Rabbi. Almost as if nothing was wrong. And Jesus responds, Friend, friend, do what you came to do. And Judas did just that and kissed him. How Jesus must have abhorred that. How it must have pierced his very heart and soul. Verse 48, Jesus responds. He says to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas, one of my loyal disciples for three years. You're actually going to go through with this? To me, the Son of Man, who has clearly revealed to you that I'm also the Son of God? Quite a contrast there, is there, between Judas and Jesus. Notice that when Jesus asks that question, he's appealing to Judas's conscience as if to give him one more opportunity to understand what he's actually doing in his treacherous conduct. So in effect, Jesus is trying to reach out to him. Well, we know how Jesus responded there. After all, Judas had to keep his promise to the Jewish religious leaders. If he wanted his money, that was more important to him. Probably he had become disenchanted with Jesus. He'd been hanging around, yes, for three years, but nothing seemed to be happening. Why aren't the Romans being thrown out? Why isn't Jesus marching in Jerusalem? So he went through his betrayal. Now I would ask you to think about this. Is it not possible that at the very moment when Jesus asked that question to him there in verse number 48, that Judas who had been repressing his guilt and his remorse, even as today unbelievers repress the truth that they know there's a true God, that he's a holy God, they know they're not right with God, but they just try to live as if that's not true. That's, you don't have to worry about that. Is this a moment when he heard Jesus ask that question, did he begin to have second thoughts about what he was doing? Was suddenly his soul beginning to change in its attitude. I ask this question for us to consider because of the subsequent uh, actions that he took. Over in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Talk about a quick change around. I'm wondering if this happened when Jesus asked that question, Judas, are you really going to do this? And when he did it, something happened within him and the fun was over. 
And he did what I just read in that portion of Scripture. Verse 49. And when those who were around him, namely his disciples, the other eleven, saw him, saw what would follow. In other words, they were getting, as you read Matthew and Mark, uh, Luke doesn't mention the actual seizing of Jesus, but they soon did that. They soon grabbed him in order to take him away and back to their headquarters. The narrative in Luke, though, implies it. Now, the disciples, understanding what's going on here, suddenly, this is not, not make-believe. Jesus has sort of hinted at this, now it's really happening. And as they reach out to grab him, they're wondering, what, what else is going to happen here? We've got to do something. Now, earlier in Luke, at chapter 9, verse 54, when the Samaritans rejected Jesus, James and John, those sons of thunder who had a temper problem anyway, that they said, Master, shall we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Well, this is kind of the way I think they were feeling now, the 11 disciples. We've got to do something. Well, before that happened, uh, before they, Jesus could even answer the question, look at verse 50. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, he brought out his sword, even though up in verse 38 of Luke chapter 22, they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. He said to them, it's enough. So then they had two little swords, not these big cutlasses, but just little tiny swords. So one is already used, that leaves one more. Not too much of a defense for weapons there. We can easily guess, if you don't know, which disciple it was that did that. But John chapter 18, verse 10, leaves us with no doubt. It was Simon Peter. Yes, he's the one we'd expect to do something like this, even more than James and John. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, says that the Galileans, and Peter was a Galilean. He came from the Galilee area to the north of Judea. Uh, they were quite pugnacious, quite belligerent kind of people. And we've seen this before with Peter, uh, this, this kind of attitude that he would take, uh, acting before he should. And that's what happened here. Now, we have to acknowledge Peter did have courage. He certainly had loyalty during this moment. And might he have thought that Jesus in some way would join him uh, and do something about the mob and rout them. Maybe the words, we're not sure exactly where Jesus said these words in terms of this incident, but some of you are familiar with the fact that in Matthew 26, 53, Jesus said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus could have done that at that moment. I'm sure he was under the temptation to do that. What he was facing in the crucifixion was horrible. As he experienced in his uh, incident in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, this is just a terrible thing. And maybe this would be the last straw right now. All right, enough of this. I'm going to call down 12 legions of angels to deliver me. Thankfully, he didn't. Because if he had done that, 
we would have no Savior. He would not have gone to the cross to suffer for our sins. So thankfully, he did not go that direction. Now in that verse where we mentioned, he mentions Peter, John chapter 18, verse 10, also gives us another name. And it was the name of the servant of the high priest, who's referred to there in verse 50. Peter struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his right ear. His name was Malchus, and Malchus means king. Now, I'm kind of tempted to think back and say, I wonder if I'm related to him. You know, king, royalty, having those kind of ancestors in my background. Because my last name, some of you don't know, is Malchor. Malchus, Malchor, yes. But we won't go down that way. <laughs> but he was a servant of the high priest, uh, possibly the leader of the mob. He might have stepped forward closer than anyone else beside Judas. Um, here's an interesting question at this point. John mentions his name, but Luke doesn't. Why does Luke just say, and Peter did it? Peter struck off that right ear. And I think the answer is that the Gospel of John, as well as the, the Gospel of Luke here, was written many years after the incident of the crucifixion and even of the resurrection and Pentecost. And these Jewish religious leaders never forgot that. And they, had, uh, they were out after these disciples. And Peter's life, especially, as a sort of a spokesman, would have been threatened easily. And so in order to guard Peter, I think Luke decided, I'm not going to say who it was. There's still word around that there's a bounty after him, so I won't do that. It says he uh, struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his right ear. Uh, it seems that Peter was aiming for uh, Malchus's head. And maybe at the last minute, Malchus moved, saw him coming and moved his head, and so whap, he cut off his right ear. Dr. Luke would be interested in that. Notice his right ear, not just his ear, indicating a, a very uh, reputable first-hand witness of that incident. It wasn't the left ear, it was the right ear. Very specific eyewitness testimony. When that happened, how did Jesus respond? He said, no more of this. Uh, the Greek puts it this way, so far and no further. I don't want this, any more of this kind of thing going on. In Matthew 26, 52, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Interesting to see that the great apostle Paul kind of lapsed into a little weakness, not exactly like Peter here, but somewhat. Do you remember this incident in Acts chapter 21, 23? And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him, by Paul, to strike him on the mouth. And so that was done. The servant stepped to the soldier of, uh, and said, whap, whap him on the face. Now, Paul then responded this way. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting here to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. It's written, you shall not speak evil, the ruler of your people. 
But you see the problem that God's people had all down through the years. The tendency to do something like this. Peter, cut off the ear. Paul, you whitewashed wall. Even though they soon realized they should not have done quite that kind of action. This command of Jesus not to do this was very important. Because Peter's act had placed Jesus in a very difficult situation. What was that? Well, if he was going to stand, as he would, before Pilate and say, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And so the difficulty was that with that incident, it almost seemed that the disciples were a band of outlaws, wild outlaws with these swords and so on. And certainly that was not what Jesus wanted to happen. So Jesus goes into action at the end of verse 51. He touched his ear and healed him. How interesting, how brief that is. He touched his ear and healed him. This was the last of about 32 miracles that Jesus performed in his public ministry. Quite different from the first one at the wedding of Cana, where he turned the water into wine. That was a very joyful occasion. And now here, it's in the shadow of the cross when this, his last miracle occurs. And how characteristic that even this dark hour of his betrayal, he still showed concern for his enemies. He showed concern for Judas in his question in verse 48, and now the servant Malchus. And by the way, this was the last service Jesus would render with his hands, which soon would be bound and later would be hung on a cross. The hands that again and again in his public ministry he had laid upon people to heal them and to bless them, even to heal this servant of the high priest, Malchus. Jesus leaves no doubt at uh, what happened here, but uh, there's a little bit of a question here. Why wasn't there more amazement here at uh, what happened? Uh, the abruptness of this miracle seems to be so quick and that's over with. What was that about? Two possibilities. One uh, would be this, that the, lig- the ear was still attached to the head, hanging by a ligament. That's why it could happen real quickly. Or even if the, the ear had gone down to the ground, Jesus quickly picked it up, and it seemed like it happened so quickly nobody really noticed that except Malchus, <laughs> who was undoubtedly in pain and agony when that happened. Uh, and this is why it seems that the mob really didn't see, most of the people didn't see that. It just suddenly happened, and Jesus did it very quickly. So there's a possibility why there's no such amazement here. Now we come to verse 52. Jesus now has a few things to say. And we notice who the leaders of this assault were. The Jewish religious leaders, chief priests, officers of the temple, and elders are the ones who had come out against him. This is not anti-Semitism. This is not attacking Jews in general. But this is simply an historical incident that happened back in the first century. Those people were guilty of what they did. Probably many in that mob knew that Jesus would not uh, try to resist or escape. 
I don't think they were expecting, maybe some of the disciples were for Jesus when this happened, when Peter struck off, struck off the ear, that uh, suddenly uh, Jesus was going to say, all right, men, attack. Well, he had two swords. But he still has something important to say. Verse 52. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? You're treating me like I'm a riffraff robber, a common criminal. All your swords, all your clubs, all your weapons, your torches, your lamps. What a deal. He stresses his defenselessness. Don't you understand? Mike's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He may not have said that, but that had been his teaching. In saying these words, even at this moment, he confronted their guilt, didn't he? You wonder how many of those, that mob of people, realized we're doing the wrong thing here. How did I get involved in this? Nevertheless, there he was. So he's doing them a favor to help them search their hearts. They had to see their sinful rebellion against him. And this is always the biggest problem we have with dealing with people to get them to see their sin problem. Jesus confronted them on that. And then verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. There I was almost every day in the temple. You had every opportunity to lay your hands on me. Why didn't you do it then? Why didn't you arrest me then? All right, here are my hands. Go ahead. And they would have bound his hands, probably his ankles even, and grabbed him and carried him to carry him back. But Jesus still was not quite finished here. The end of verse 53. And this is particular to Luke. Only Luke has this sentence. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. I've already pointed out previously that Jesus' hour was now involved with the whole crucifixion. But now is also the time for Satan. Although in reality the devil was subservient to Jesus. Because the power of darkness, and I think that's the phrase refers to Satan. The phrase, this is your hour, was the mob of people. But now also, it's also the time for the power of darkness, Satan, to give everything he's got now, his last chance to get Jesus before he would go to the cross and die for his people. So there are the two hours, the hours of Jesus, the hour of Satan. He has a lot of power. He had a lot of power then, but Jesus' power, of course, was greater. And we learned, probably remember this from last week's uh, message or so, a message or two ago, back in verse uh, 22 of Luke chapter 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. There you have the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, and yet, the ones carrying it out are sinners doing very rebellious, sinful things. Let me close with four comments. Number one, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, 
You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Loving your enemies. This is a responsibility that we who are Christians have to do just that. And Jesus gives a sublime example of that in this scene that we looked at this morning. To love your enemy is not easy and it's not comfortable. If somebody really has something against you, somebody's mistreated you in a terrible way, you still have to try to love them, work with them, help them, and not lash at them. And that's our responsibility. That's why Peter did the wrong thing there in doing that. Comment number two. Don't you think that the 11 disciples long remembered that particular incident? Especially Peter, who writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter saying to his readers, just as Jesus suffered and loved his enemies, we have to be like that too in the midst of a very pagan, dark, sinful world. That's our responsibility. Number three, using the sword. The crusaders used the sword. When the Muslims swept into Europe, they said, we've got to drive these people back. So out came literal swords and weapons and a lot of bloodshed as they drove them back. But they were rather ignorant of Ephesians 6.17. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's what we must use. Not getting into big heated arguments, not using our fists and slamming them in the head, not beating them up somehow physically, but sharing with them the gospel, calling their attention to the existence of the true and living God, a holy God, calling attention to their sin. You are out. God's wrath is upon you right now. If you don't get right with him. Well, how do I get right with him? Through Jesus Christ who gave his life for sinners like us. And the way you become converted is you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. And then you give evidence that you really mean that and live for his glory. That's the sword we should use. Now, closing number four. I want you to use your imagination. Come back to that day of the crucifixion of Jesus. Many people were around. You had the Jewish religious leaders. You had the Roman soldiers. You had citizens of Jerusalem. And you had many visitors in town for the Passover feast from all over the known world of the Roman Empire gathered around here. I want you to look carefully in your imagination. That group off to your right up there. The back row, the fifth guy from the end, the one focused so intensely on what's happening. Is that Malchus? 
course, we don't know. Speculation. But it's possible that the fact Jesus healed him so quickly and wonderfully, he heard Jesus' words, he saw his demeanor, and the Holy Spirit could have worked in his heart to bring him to himself, even as each of us have needed the Holy Spirit to bring us to the, to the Lord God, the Holy God, that we might have our sins forgiven and pardoned and live for his glory. It's what we need and what our world even needs today. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we do thank you that you sent your Son to be our Savior and our Lord. We thank you that you gave him the courage and the strength to go all the way, even to the death of a terrible cross. Our Lord, we come to you now through him and ask that you would give us the ability to uh, love our enemies, to treat them with respect, help us to suffer for your sake and your glory and not rebel against that, but yield to it and learn from it. And that you would help us to use the right sword, the word of God, as we seek to live for you and your glory. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Our closing hymn is number 200.